My name is Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the show. Today we're talking with Jasper Ford, author of The Air Affair, the first in a series about literary detective Thursday Next. His latest novel, now out from Viking, is Lost in a Good Book. Ford combines literary scholarship and high silliness with an ease that belies his considerable comedic prose skills. Welcome to the show, Jasper. Oh, thank you very much. Jasper, the world you've created in The Air Affair and Lost in a Good Book is considerably more literary than ours. Uh, yeah, this was uh, this was the main uh, the main difference I think between Thursday's world and ours. There's lots of differences, but uh, this was the main thing. And of course, it's absolutely necessary because I had the idea of a literary detective um, investigating the kidnapping of of Jane Eyre from the novel Jane Eyre. Of course, for that to have any you know to be really important and of world shattering uh, consequence, obviously people would have to be that much more you know affected by things literary. So I, I found when I started writing the book that I had to create a world where you know everybody loves literature. And and I don't think this is any better demonstrated it, other than in the uh, Richard III audience participation um, uh, theatre show, which which happens in the book. And this this for me sort of really sums up what uh, what her her book is her her world is all about. Could you tell us about that uh, Richard III? Oh yeah, well this is where you you dress up as uh, this is Richard III from the from the Shakespeare play, obviously, and you dress up in the various characters, and uh, and the cast is chosen just before curtain up, and you go out there and you have to actually act out, and it's it's just like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but with a, a Shakespeare play instead. So you you shout out um, you know all sorts of questions, and, and then are answered by the the text of the play and everything, and it's a real sort of you know pell mell and free for all, but but obviously great fun. Now, you've written two novels that take place in existing novels that many readers know and are familiar with. Mm. What made you take this metafictional route? Um, I don't know. I think I was... I love the idea that uh, that books, when you... The books have a, have a real life inside them. And when you close the book, all the characters sort of breathe a sigh of relief and go, you know, oh, there we are, stopped being... Uh, We've we've stopped being read now. We can relax, and, and and this sort of whole world is carrying on, even though you know you, they don't actually exist, but it's all carrying on for real. So I kind of like that, and the idea that uh, that these characters had a backstory, you know, and a previous world, and, and a, a larger world than is within the covers of the um, the book. And I think it was just taking that idea and just expanding on it. Now, who are your metafictional influences? Ooh, don't know really. Uh, I think it's from everywhere. Really, I mean, my first influence, I think, was from when I was very small, uh, reading Lewis Carroll on Alice in Wonderland and all those sort of things and uh, the bizarre worlds. I mean, he because he creates, actually, he does have uh, characters from fiction come to life, like Humpty Dumpty, for instance, um, and the chess pieces and the, and the cards and the King and Queen of Hearts. So, I mean, I think that is probably, you know, one of the, you know, the starting point for the whole, uh, the whole sort of uh, conceit, if you were. Now, are you planning on writing any of the fictional books that you cite <laughs> in your novels? You cite quite a few. It's one of the yeah, more entertaining parts. Um, yeah, there's this, this character called Milan de Floss who, who turns up quite a bit. And these are in these chapter headings of, of the book um, that I quite like. It's, the chapter headings are fun um, because they, it's a way of getting information across to the, to the, to the readership without actually, because, because the books are told in first person. Um, it's it it is harder to get exposition across, and because I'm creating worlds within worlds within worlds, um, I have to do a lot of you know expositional um, writing. Uh, so these these little these little chapter headings are great fun to get information across, uh, and I thought I'd have them as quotes from books written by these uh, these other people. One of which is is Milan de Floss. Um, I think the sort of concept of it is that that the the all these books are told by a very aged Thursday next in the year sort of twenty. 63 or something and all these books are books which have been written you know and published a long long time so um so it's kind of referring to them i don't know whether i actually 
write a book, you know, by them. Uh, but it'd be quite interesting. I mean, uh, Asheron Hades has a book, you know, I think De- Degeneracy for Pleasure and Profit, which would be quite fun to, <laughs> to write. I must say, all kinds of, sort of evil, evil deeds in it. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. Now, how do you choose the novels through which your characters travel? Mm. Um, well, they have to be, I mean, first and foremost, because what I'm doing here is playing with the familiar, because uh, obviously uh, I and the people who read my books, we have a collective memory. The things that I've experienced in my past life uh, are things that, that other people experience. So I'm tapping into that sort of, you know, that collective memory. Um, and to make that work, they have to be obviously familiar. Uh, and the point about Jane Eyre is that it's, it is sort of vaguely familiar to, to people. If you, don't, if you haven't read the book, then you've seen the film. If you haven't seen the film or read the book, then you probably know that Jane Eyre is a character from Victorian fiction. Um, it's also um, sort of playing in a, in a kind of sort of playfully irrever- irreverent way with uh, the classics, which for a long time now have been hallowed ground, you know, far too much so, I think. Um, and part of it is sort of playing with that familiar in an unfamiliar way. I'm, I'm playing with these 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 study texts because a lot of these, you know, Jane Eyre would actually study texts in literature at school. Um, oh yeah, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it happened to me. Yeah, that's right. So and you're forced to read them, and you know, and it's you know, read this, you know, um, and enjoy it, you know, by your teachers. Um, so I'm really playing with a, a familiar sort of subject, but in an unfamiliar way and in a very playful way, which kind of works well. I mean, also they have to be in public domain, of course. Oh, now that's interesting. Yeah. So we won't be seeing a lot of uh, Thursday's Next Adventures in the, uh, the Ian Fleming novels. Say. Well, no, sadly not, um, because they're all, yes, exactly, they're all, still, um, they're all still in copyright. So in many ways, I mean, I, I actually have to make up contemporary authors. I, I have, uh, I have a, uh, uh, a, an author named Daphne Farquhar, who, <laughs> who, um, who is a sort of, um, she's a romantic writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've created her just really so that I can actually have somebody to lampoon. But we all know that, in fact, this is actually Daphne represents a sort of romantic writer um, type genre. Um, but that's a way I can get round, you know, actually, you know, dealing with this problem about contemporary novels. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons I, you know, I choose them. Yeah. Now, you must do a lot of research. Does the fiction dictate the direction of the research or does the research suggest the drive the ideas that drive the fiction? Um, the research, really, I mean, I think probably the research drives the novel in many ways. I mean, I, I look for book two. Obviously, I've used Jane Eyre in book one, so I didn't want to use that in book two. So in book two, I was looking more towards Dickens and Great Expectations um, and Miss Havisham and Wuthering Heights. And as soon as I started looking at that and thinking about you know, Miss Havisham, I could see the sort of general direction in which things were going. I mean, certainly I was hunting around also in Lewis Carroll for characters to use and the Cheshire Cat and the Red Queen and trying to take these characters and use them and, and move them together. So so often when I'm just thinking about writing a book, I will just be watching TV or reading a book or someone says something and I think, oh, yes, I could, I could use that. So it is very much led by sort of what happens to be sort of around me at the time. Well, I was thrilled to see the judge from Kafka's The Trial oh, yeah. in yeah. there. yeah. Yeah, I, I worked on a, on the film of the trial many years ago. I think about nineteen ninety two. Um, so I actually knew that I knew it quite well. It was a, a a film which was very close to the to the book, which is probably why it didn't do very well. Um, and I'd read the read the book, and so I knew the, the characters from uh, you know quite well. So that was actually quite a, a nice sort of relatively easy chapter to write, I must say. Now you use science fictional ideas in your novels, but you don't get bogged down by them. How much of an influence was the science fiction genre in your development as a writer? Um, I, I, originally, there was very little science fiction in the books at all. 
Um, they really only sort of developed when I was trying to find a narrative way to get into books. Um, that Thursday has to travel in, into books using a, a, something called a prose portal. But as, as the book, as the air affair developed, I found that um, Thursday's world has, you know, very different sort of technology to ours. And some things are far advanced, like genetic engineering is far advanced in Thursday's world. And things like jetliners d- don't exist at all. Um, <laughs> so there was a kind of a lot of fun there. And, and also playing with this, this idea of this, uh, her, her uncle is this sort of eccentric inventor called Mycroft and he comes up with all kinds of sort of impossible ideas so I'm I'm really sort of pushing physics you know way beyond the limits Um, which is great fun Um, and it did tend to create a sort of certain science fiction sort of side to it but I think it's only just just one side of it I mean I I like to think of the the book as a a sort of Swiss army knife of books you know with a lot of different uh, you know genres in there. It's definitely the Swiss army knife Mm. of books Mm. now um, you mentioned Mycroft yeah um there's a picture of you, I believe, somewhere with um, Q from the James oh, Bond yeah. D- movies. Des- Desmond Llewellyn. Yes. Yeah, what, a, what a lovely man, sadly, no, no longer with us. Um, I remember watching the Q, the Q section. I mean, I remember watching James Bond movies when I, was, when I was little, and I was brought up with them, and we are in England, you know, totally. And, you know, wait for the, every year a new Bond film comes in. And the most uh, favorite bit for me was, of course, always the Q scene, where you had all these fantastic gadgets, you know, with Desmond Llewellyn, who sort of got older and older as the series progressed. Um, and years later, I worked on Goldeneye, so I actually got to meet him and do the, do a Q scene, uh, which was, of course, great fun. It was the high point of the film, and everyone was kind of waiting to do it. You know, always great fun to do all these bizarre adventures. You know, or bizarre inventions, which which never quite go right on camera, but um, we got it in the end, and it was good. Now, in the Air Affair, you use a science fiction idea, time travel, but. It's just tossed away, kind of. Yeah, I, I like. I mean, time travel is probably one of the most overused plot devices, um, certainly in science fiction um, and in a lot of TV, um, TV movies everywhere. Used a lot. So I think the fun, the fun thing to do with with time travel is is have a really strong sort of narrative idea, and then just completely, you know, just toss it aside, as you say, and and relegate it to uh, merely a subplot. And I think the point about technology in Thursday's world is that, like it is in our world, once technology is like a week old, it's very ho-hum and boring. You know, I mean, no one gets excited about what computers can do anymore because we expect them to be able to do everything they do, you know, twice as fast. In fact, we get annoyed now that they don't do them any faster, you know, that we can't burn CDs in real time and all this sort of thing. And so so I took that um, into Thursday's world. And, of course, you know, this re-engineering idea about she has a pet dodo. Um, but, um, you know, she re-engineered it when, when you, could, you could buy home cloning kits. But that was a long time ago. And now, you know, having a pet dodo is no more unusual than having, you know, a pet cat, for instance. Um, so I think it was, and the same with time travel, you know, uh, that, that workers in the time industry, you know, they've been doing it for a long time. It's been around 40 or 50 years. And it's very boring. It's very ho-hum. Um, and it's strongly unionized now. Unlike many of the industries we have. <laughs> now, you find quite a bit more to do with it in Lost in a Good Book. Mm. What, with the time travel? Yes. Yeah, well, um, yes, because cause, cause the, the way I tend to write books and the way I tend to think is I, I take things to their logical logical conclusion. And certainly with time travel, you know, it'll be about being unionized, you know, because I think the, the time time workers are on, are on strike for shorter hours. I mean, they don't actually want <laughs> to work less hours. They want the hours they do work to be shorter, like, you know, like 52 minutes or something like that. Um, 
So, so yes, so uh, in, in book two, Thursday's Husband is eradicated, which you can do in Thursday's world. You can actually, you know, illegal time use. Someone can go back and kill your husband when he was only two years old. And, you know, he, to all intents and purposes, he never existed. He didn't, doesn't exist. But, um, but they left the memories of him with Thursday. So she gets very confused, you know, goes home, finds she doesn't live there, finds she lives in a flat across town. And she has to sort of pick up the pieces of her life um, without her husband. Um, and his presence. So, yeah, and it's a big blackmail, big blackmail thing. Yeah. Now, tell me, what is it with extinct animals? You love them. Yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of thing. I mean, all of us do, really. I mean, it's like going to a natural history museum and staring up at the, um, at the uh, you know, the dinosaurs, the bones of the dinosaurs, and, and with our father or mother telling us, you know, and this used to live 65 million years ago. And, of course, 65 million years is, is such a long, hugely long period of time that you just can't even, you know, get into your head but the idea of something that died out maybe 400 years ago or even 60 years ago in the case of the uh, the thylacine the tasmanian tiger it's actually you know quite an interesting sort of subject and i like the idea about um being able to clone things back from extinction but the idea i, I more like about it is what happens after that because we can always talk about all these you know getting creatures back but but what happens 10 years after we've brought them back and that's really about you know the re-engineered species in my book that's really what it's all about when it becomes ho-hum when there are so many dodos around they have to be shot because they're a pest you know what do you do with neanderthals when you you bring them back and you can't use them for what you wanted to use them you know you know where do they go you know what what do you do how do they belong in this in this environment so i mean that's 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 more the fun of it i must say for me now, you have a truly anarchic sense of humor, and mm. your books are somewhat anarchic. As you say, they're, mm. they're um, Swiss Army Knife books. They're mystery, science fiction, yeah. horror, thriller, romance, comedy, everything. How do you manage to keep all your wild ideas inside mm. what is a very, very organized and logical universe? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, the important thing is that there is a logic to the universe. There is, there is a logic to Thursday's world. And, and once people, once readers can understand the logic, and it, and it is just like the world we live in, but just you just change the parameters slightly. And I think once, once the logic is in place, I mean, I, I, see, I, I mean, I couldn't have, obviously, Thursday couldn't start flying, for instance. She couldn't sprout wings and start flying because that, that falls way outside the logic of her world. So there are obviously some things you can't do, and there, there are very strong parameters. Um, but once the logic works... And, and I don't sort of go beyond, you know, the silliness, you know, go be too silly or go too unusual, then I think it all sort of hangs together. And certainly getting all the different threads together is, is relatively easy for me because um, a lot of the time they don't actually cross. They're all sort of different, different little threads of the story. They're all like subplots, but they actually they weave rather than, than merge. So in that respect, it's actually quite easy to keep, uh, keep in track of all of them. Now, you have a lot of fun with names in your novels, mm. and you have a lot of fun with language. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like silly names. This is a sort of long tradition that goes back to sort of Charles Dickens, you know, sort of where he used to come up to with some fantastic names. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I just like sort of silly-sounding names. I mean, Bowden Cable is Thursday's partner, and, and a Bowden Cable, for anyone who doesn't know, is actually that sleeved cable that's used on your bicycle brakes or an on a, uh, accelerator cable in a car. That is called a Bowden cable, named after Frank Bowden, who invented it. Um, I actually didn't know that. <laughs> there you go. Now you, know, right. you heard it here first. Um, Landon Park Lane, um, Thursday's husband, it, when I was speaking to Penguin, um, they said, do you want to change his name to the, the American equivalent, which would be Landon Boardwalk, because it's a, it's, you know, it's a move on the Monopoly board. 
Um, and I said, no, no, let's keep it as land and part land. He'd only be confused. But of course, then, um, to take things to their logical progression, as I always do, his parents are called uh, Bilden and Housen. You know, Bilden, <laughs> Bilden Park Lane, Housen Park Lane. So, yeah, I mean, there's some real groaners in there, but I try and hide them just enough so that people maybe don't figure them out. Um, the, these in, in book two, there are these duos um, of, of agents from SO5 who are hunting this, this um, baddie called Aeornis. Um, and they have names like Deadman and Walkin and, um, <laughs> and Lamb and Slaughter and stuff like that, which kind of, uh, you know, presupposes what's going to happen to them. So, you know, as soon as you meet two characters called Deadman and Walkin, that you know they're going to be dead within, you know, uh, a couple of chapters. So I, I like to play with them and they, they do sort of hint at the characters. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's just great fun. Now, your satire is very funny, but it never uh, manages to be cruel, crude, mm. or rude. And that's yeah. a really difficult line to keep on the right side of. How do you do it? Uh, cruel, crude, or rude. Well, I mean, I don't really want to sort of upset or annoy anyone, really. You know, I mean, I think maybe the uh, uh, if you can do satire without actually, you know, annoying anyone, then I think it's 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 subtle, but it's it's fun, and you know, and it's it doesn't cause any problems. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it really reflects the kind of you know silly jokes that I enjoy most, which are neither rude, crude, or you know, or anything. Um, but uh, yeah, there is a very fine line there that that I think it's 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 very easy to cross, and it's very easy to get sometimes a bit over enthusiastic and cross the line. And certainly, when I, I do sometimes, and there are certainly lots of you know jokes which are a lot cruder that make it into the first draft that never actually make it into the final book, just because I want to keep a broad audience appeal and you know not maybe not family reading, but certainly yeah, broad broad audience appeal certainly. Now, one of your main targets seems to be the world of advertising, and you create advertisements for products that are rather absurd, mm. and you also take on the whole graphic design aspect of advertising, mm. both in your books and on your website, which mm. I would recommend for anybody to go to. It's just fabulously entertaining. Yeah. Um, I think the, the interesting thing about the website, first and foremost, it, it, what I, it, it, I describe it as actualizing the, the Thursday Next world. Um, because you have all these people like the Goliath Corporation and Spec Ops and people like this, um, I've sort of created logos uh, for them and advertising sort of campaigns. Because again, it's taking, as I said, so mentioned before, it was it was taking the world to its logical conclusion. You know, it's not enough to say that there is a Goliath Corporation, but actually they'd probably have a little byline. You know, Goliath Corporation. You know, a friend in need. You know, all you ever need. The Goliath Corporation, and I've created the Goliath uh, website, which has all these sort of rather sort of totalitarianism um, uh, sort of sayings, um, and it's it's just it's just a sort of fun way of sort of playing with it. It's very enjoyable for me, and certainly writing the website does actually give me um, ways of developing ideas, new ideas, and stuff like that. So it's actually it, not only does it actualize the world because I w originally envisaged the book as having tons of illustrations because I, I always loved illustrated books. When I was little, oh, I mean, really, yeah, that I mean, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, proper novels, you know, pro full proper novels, but with about they used to have like eight illustrations in them, and certainly novels in the forties, adventure stories, you know, uh, used to have those those illustrations. And I was very keen on that, in much the same way that you, you get um, Tenniel's illustrations in Alice in Wonderland, you know. And so I wanted a very specific look to, to Thursday's world. And in fact, you know, there is a very specific look, but no one really knows what that is until you either look on the website, which I've tried to get you know, as much as I can, this visual look. Or, um, you know, maybe in the future when I do have illustrations. Now, do you do the illustrations? Do you commission them? Do you art direct no, them? No, the illustrations are, are, are it's actually my partner's um, mother 
as an illustrator, children's illustrator. And, wow. it's, and it's fantastically useful to have an illustrator in the family. Yes. Um, because I say, listen, I, I, need, I need five pictures of grammar sites to put on the, the website. And she'll go, okay, you know, be with you in an hour. And she sketches them out and send them, sends them down the wire. Um, so that's very useful. And she's drawn a lot of the, all the frontispieces, for instance, for the books she's done for us. Um, and, and it's great just to work with an artist and say, no, I think we should have this or that or the other. So, no, it's good fun. Now, you create a lot of ancillary material, the websites, postcards, mm. and contests, and I guess it does get roped back into the novels, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it does. Um, and often, because I'm always thinking really like two books ahead, I mean, I, I've actually, although this is book two is published in the U.S. now, book, sh- book three is finished, and I'm thinking about book four. So I can, I can uh, uh, often put ideas in the website and references in the website to things that happen in later books. And although that's sort of not too much use now, of course, when the books come out, then there is, you know, then you can look back at the website and you can see, ah, this is where we're going with this. And you can actually see plots start to develop and you can try and second guess, you know, what's going to happen in the, uh, the books, which is a sort of way of foreshadowing, which, which I, kind of, I kind of enjoy, I must say. That's great. Now, The Air Affair was originally meant to be a standalone novel, wasn't it? Mm, yes, it was, yes. Um, it was number five of six that, that I'd written before I was published. Um, but by the time I got to really the end of it, I was beginning to think that actually there was a lot more legs to this than just one. Um, but uh, when I was published, the Hodder, Hodder and Stoughton in the UK said to me, uh, OK, we want two. And, uh, and I said, I'm absolutely delighted, as one would, to anyone offering you a book deal. And they said, right, well, you know, what's it about? And I went, uh, and I just made up a few things on the, on the spur of the moment. And they said, terrific, you know, go to it. Um, so, then I, so then I just had to write a book two. Um, what about those other books? Are we going to see them? Well, with a with a bit of luck, with a bit of luck, um, book three has a bit of an arm twist written into it. Um, so it gives a sort of reason why the first book that I'd I'd written should should actually be there. So it, it it's almost a spin off book. So um, so yeah, I mean, fingers crossed, um, we can have the other books published. Yeah. So what else can we expect from you after book three and book four? Book three and book four. Well, um, more books. I mean, I've, I've got another five books unpublished sitting under my desk. So, as I said, we'll try and get those done. It's it's an exciting time for me. There's there's still lots of adventures I think that Thursday can undertake in fiction because books about books are almost limitless. And well, certainly, sure. uh, yeah, yeah. And there's lots there's lots happening to her. Lots that could happen in her world. Um, certainly, a lot of things going on. So I don't know. It's a very exciting time for me as a writer. I must say. Now, you come from film, mm. and for books that are about books mm. and about reading, mm. the Thursday Next books seem eminently well adapted for uh, film. Mm. Have you been approached? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I, I get offers all the time for options, but of course that's not movie making. That's just sort of commodity brokerage, really. Somebody wants to buy short and sell long. Um, the, 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 the worry about giving options to a book, of course, is that they may make it, and they may make it really badly. Yes. Um, so, you know, they could say, uh, well, we'll set it in Miami and, you know, and we'll have some male lead of the, of, you know, set in the in the female role instead and we'll change it around. There's nothing I can do with it. So I, I think I'm just going to wait until somebody really wants to make it and then I, so I can dictate terms and try and keep the, the spirit of the original intact. Well, that's great. It's been nice mm. talking with you, Jasper. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've been talking with Jasper Ford, author of The Air Affair, and his new book is Lost in a Good Book.